So welcome everybody. Can you hear me? So my name is Tom, Tom Kirchmeier. I'm from the Financial Markets Group here at LSE and also your chair for this evening. Uh, we have Andrew Ross Sorkin here, Sorkin here talking about his new book, Too Big to Fail. We had a pre-copy. It's actually quite a good read. The way we do it, he talks for about half an hour now and then we do a Q&A for half an hour and, you know, let's see how it goes. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I should, should warn you in advance that actually this is a slight homecoming for me in that I, um, you probably wouldn't know this, I would not exist were not for the LSE because my parents, who are both American, actually happened to meet here um, probably 50 years ago, and my mother was here as a junior, and my father was here on a Fulbright scholarship. So, um, and then I was here uh, for part of 1998, so this is actually pretty cool to be in this room, given the people I know who've gotten to speak here before. Um, so anyway, that's out, out there, but I wanted to say it. Um, I wanted to spend the next half hour talking a little bit about this book, Too Big to Fail, and maybe some of the lessons that have been learned as a result of it. And then I'm hoping we can try to open this up and really make it a conversation. It looks like we actually have a great uh, crowd, so it should be uh, quite good. Um, and I am told, and I think some of you actually have either read parts of the book or some of you might have even had seen some of the excerpts either in the Times of London or Vanity Fair or, or something like that. The book, for me, started, oddly enough, on September 15th, 2008, at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. And it's a very relevant date because I had just finished writing the front page story for the New York Times that day, and Lehman Brothers had just filed for bankruptcy at 1.45 in the morning and Merrill Lynch had been sold to Bank of America, and we had just learned that the next domino, if you will, was AIG. They were sort of what seemed at the moment like the secret domino that nobody had realized was about to go off next. And I remember getting home at about 2.30 in the morning and frankly being kind of freaked out. I couldn't believe that this has happened. It almost seemed like the world was about to fall off of its axis all of a sudden. And I desperately wanted to talk to somebody about it, anybody. And of course, at 2.30, it's sort of hard to find anybody. So I, I woke up my wife, um, <laughs> who wasn't particularly thrilled uh, to be woken up, nor uh, did she seem to think this was nearly as dramatic as I did. Um, but, of course, I recounted this entire story to her, and at the end, I said to her, it's like a movie. And she sort of looked at me, and, and she's a literary agent, and before sort of rolling over, she looked at me and she said, no, it's like a book, Andrew. And so that's sort of how this, this whole project came to be. Um, but the goal of the project, more than anything else, was to reconstruct the record for the first time um, so that all of you and, and the readers and the public could see what happened inside the room during this calamitous period. And, you know, we had all read the headlines, and I had uh, had a hand in helping write uh, some of these headlines and write some of these stories. But as I really dug into it, I, I knew and wanted to find out more about this great mystery. And that's what I really thought of this as a puzzle. Um, why did Lehman fail and why did AIG not? What happened to Goldman Sachs? You know, was Hank Paulson part of a, a grand conspiracy? When did we know that these problems were really about to crest and, and what had happened behind the scenes? Um, and here in the UK, um, what was happening with the regulators? When you hear the story, you know, You'll all recall Hank Paulson blamed the British regulators for, for letting Lehman go. Um, Alistair Darling said it was Paulson who did it. I wanted to find out the answer. And so I spent the past year um, doing interview after interview, asking what had to be probably the most tedious questions you could ever uh, experience. Most people were probably not happy with me when I was finished. I interviewed uh, over 200 people, uh, most if not all of the participants at the center of the crisis, whether they be the CEOs, managements, uh, boards, board members, government officials, uh, both on this side uh, of the Atlantic and on uh, my home ground, if you will, in Washington and elsewhere. And really um, would sit and go meeting by meeting. What did you say? What did you do? Let's look through your emails. Let's look through the calendar. Let's really try to reconstruct the record. I had CEOs who would come to me and say, Andrew, you're wrong. Let's, let's go and get the phone records. Uh, people who showed up shockingly with notes. I had a CEO very early on in the process who actually came to me with his notes from that fateful weekend uh, down at the Federal Reserve. And he, I have to tell you, these notes are better than any reporter's notes I'd ever seen in my life. He had written Poland, uh, Paulson, colon, 
quote, I mean, it was really quite extraordinary. He'd even actually written on the sheet where everybody sat at the table. And I said to him, you know, at the end of the the sort of meeting, I said, why are you giving me this stuff? And he said to me, because, uh, you know, for the same reason I took it, uh, because I knew this was history in the making. And so there was an extraordinary number of people who participated in this project um, because I think they did think there was an element of history. There were other people clearly who participated uh, to save, protect, or otherwise spin their legacy, as you can imagine, and and I, I... did my best to try to avoid uh, letting that spin uh, into the project. Uh, And then there were other people who participated because they had to. Um, And one of the most interesting things that I had as a reporter, the experience, was there becomes a tipping point where you get to a a period where people who don't want to talk to you, and of course, you know, when you start a project like this, you go around and nobody wants to talk to you. When you can say, listen, I know you don't want to talk to me, but I also know that you were at John Mack's house who runs Morgan Stanley, at 10.30 a.m. in the morning on Saturday, July 21st. You sat on the couch on the right. You had a chicken wrap sandwich that his wife, Christy, had brought you and that your son called because he was late for the game. Um, when, when you get to that point, and there was a great moment where I was able to get to that point, um, if you will, everybody else sort of fell in line. And so that was sort of an extraordinary period. And then I would literally sit for, for months, if not longer with the transcripts of these various interviews, with the notes, with the emails, and try to match all of, all of the quotes. And, and almost it became a sort of journalistic shuttle diplomacy where you literally go back and forth, back and forth. Did you really say it that way? You said that? You used that? You cursed like that? Really? And then they would say, no, I didn't. And then you go back to the other guy. Yes, he did. That's exactly what he said. Um, and, and the most extraordinary part was actually I, I did this on what people in the United States would call a Woodward background. Uh, Bob Woodward, who's a very famous political journalist, um, sort of gives everybody carte blanche to say whatever they want on the condition that they don't, that he doesn't identify who the sources are. Um, Not that he doesn't identify who said what to whom, but he doesn't say who said what he said. Um, And so so everybody, or most everybody, participated uh, under that working assumption. So that's the backstory toward sort of how this book came to be. And, And really, I tell people, in the end, it actually turned into more of a human drama than I imagined. You know, the book's called Too Big to Fail. It's really less, in an odd way, about institutions that are too big to fail than it is about people who think that they're too big to fail. And it is about the greed and the hubris and the power more than anything else. I was actually sort of remarking the other day that I I think a lot of the popular press and a lot of the sort of public outrage that we have now about bonuses and the like, there's a sense that that people on Wall Street uh, do what they do because they actually want the money. And I think there's probably an element of that, too. But in the end, I think what you see, and even the petty jealousies and the conversations and backstories between people, it's really about the power. The, the money, in the end, oddly becomes just the scorecard um, for, for, the, for the power that I think a lot of these people craved. And, and, and some of that, that craving helped, or helped contribute to this problem in that people missed um, the larger picture. But this book really is a, a, about, in many ways, two protagonists. And the two protagonists in this book, in particular, are... Hank Paulson and Dick Fold. Uh, Dick Fold is the CEO of Lehman Brothers, as many of you know, and Hank Paulson is the, uh, or was the Treasury uh, Secretary in the United States. And for those of you who've seen the movie Crash, and I don't know if you have, um, the book is actually modeled. It's not uh, that literary in that it's like the movie Crash, in that I wanted you to follow four or five different storylines um, that seem to be happening somewhat independently of each other. But, of course, as the story progresses, they all cataclysmically come together. And so you're following Lehman Brothers and Dick as one. And the book starts actually at Dick's house at 5 a.m. in the morning on March 17th, the day after Bear Stearns is sold to J.P. Morgan. And I use that as an inflection point really on both the policy shift in Washington and the United States about the idea that the government all of a sudden became in the business of or became willing to save companies and banks on Wall Street and the shift in Wall Street and the marketplace about what that expectation meant. Because part of it, this whole process was about confidence in the system and what the expectations were, and and when expectations were not met, what that did to undermine the confidence ultimately. And so, well, actually, let me back up one, one other step. When I started the book, and this was actually sort of the revelation for me, and I hope is in a way the revelation for you, 
I actually thought I was going to write about six or seven days in September, right? That's what many of us focused on, the, that fateful week in Lehman weekend and AIG, and it seemed like, you know, you saw what happened here, and it was a, a very difficult and tumultuous time. And I started thinking I would do moment by moment just for a week. And then as I started doing the reporting, you started realizing, for example, that when you heard about Bank of America or Barclays showing up on the scene to buy Lehman Brothers, I thought originally that they had shown up on the scene in September, uh, the week before Lehman Brothers went down. That's what all the newspapers said, including the ones that I had written. Um, but as you go back and you start doing the reporting, you find out, or I found out, that in fact, the U.S. Treasury, the, the, the government, the U.S. government had actually stepped in, not in September, but in April of 2008, um, and actually made a phone call behind the back of Dick Fold. In fact, Lehman Brothers didn't even know this was happening, to orchestrate a deal with Bob Diamond, who was the CEO of Barclays Capital, to buy Lehman Brothers. Um, that Bank of America, which again was another company I thought that showed up in September, had been pressured by Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke to try to buy Lehman Brothers in July. In fact, there's a secret meeting that happens on July 21st at the Federal Reserve Building in New York. And then I find out that, in fact, Warren Buffett had been approached, and actually Hank Paulson had gotten on the phone with him, not in September, but in March of 2008, and had tried to get him to invest in Lehman Brothers. And so you sort of see this progression, and, and it really actually changed the skew and narrative, if you will, of the whole story. In fact, one of the other sequences that to me is, and shocked me in my own way, I think, was I was trying to get at Goldman and the whole sort of conspiratorial view of whether Hank Paulson was doing things that were either untoward or otherwise to help Goldman at the expense of others. And somebody says to me, do you know about the board meeting in Russia? I said, no, what, what, what board meeting are you talking about? And they said, well, if you can figure out the board meeting in Russia, you got a book. <laughs> and uh, that's all they left me with. You know, That's how this works, right? You get a little piece and a little piece. And what, what, what I ended up discovering was that actually in June of 2008, Goldman Sachs does a board meeting once a year annually outside of the United States. Uh, last year they had done it, I think, in the Middle East, and this year they decided they were going to Moscow. In fact, St. Petersburg first, and then they were going to go to Moscow. And so I looked on the calendar to see when this was. And then it just so happened that I, I had two researchers working with me, so I, I won't take full credit for this, because uh, one of the researchers sent me a note and said, did you, did you know that Hank Paulson was in Moscow at the same time? And I said, no, uh, okay, we got to figure this out. And, and then started, things started to click. And um, as I really got inside both the U.S. government and Goldman Sachs, uh, what you will find without spoiling the, the complete surprise is that there is a meeting that is set up at 9.30 p.m. at the Marriott Marquis in Hank Paulson's own suite that is left off the calendar um, with the board of Goldman Sachs and Hank Paulson together. Um, it's uh, a meeting that does not look good uh, by any means. I think we can all uh, agree on that. In fact, his um, chief of staff ended up calling, and I have this in the book, his chief of staff, uh, Paulson's chief of staff, ends up calling the general counsel of um, the Treasury Department to ask if this is acceptable, like when, whether they can have this meeting. And uh, the general counsel's response is, the optics don't look good at all. <laughs> but... If it's really just a social event, then it's okay. Um, and in fact, it, legally, that is sort of the, 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 at least the story that people stick to. Uh, um, in fairness, though, I, I tell that story because it, it is one of those sort of more astonishing moments in the reporting process. In fairness to um, the, the conspiratorial view, I must say that it was very unsatisfying as a reporter to actually report out what happened during this 35 or 45 minute meeting, which was that there was no real plot to take over the world, which is what I was hoping for. Um, 
but in fact that they literally were obviously old friends because many of them knew each other and they literally sat around on the bed talking about different stories and Paulson was giving a speech the next day and oddly enough gives it sort of um, uh, almost almost as like a practicing if you will his speech uh, for the next day and, and he's going to have a meeting with Putin so he's carrying on about that. And, and the, the funny part is that uh, the Goldman board and I think Paulson are all convinced that the hotel room is, is bugged. And so um, it, nothing ends up happening. In fact, the, 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 probably the funniest moment is that Hank Paulson tells the entire board, they ask him what he thinks of the economy, and he suggests to them that the economy will actually get better by the end of the year, um, to which the next morning over breakfast, uh, one of the directors points this out, and Lloyd says, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, says, I can't understand why Hank would say that. So, um, it, it, you know, when you actually get behind the curtain a little bit, the nuance actually becomes a little bit more real. And I think throughout, by the way, on that Goldman's issue, and I imagine maybe when we get to the Q&A we can talk about some of these things, the, the Goldman piece is, in, in fact, unsatisfying in that throughout the book I think you'll see actors kind of constantly on the stage uh, worried in this sort of grand state of paranoia constantly that somehow Goldman is about to do something horrific and the U.S. government is about to help them. Um, but, of course, in truth, I think when you actually do get there, it, it doesn't happen that way, which... Um, I have to say, as a reporter, you almost wanted to, but it, it, didn't, um, it didn't work out. Um, one of the most interesting uh, parts of this, and I hope for you, to the extent that you have the opportunity to, to read the book, um, is Dick Fold as a character. Um, he has obviously been quite villainized in the press. Um, admittedly, I have written stories that have been uh, quite critical, if not villainous, uh, of Dick Fold over, over time. But one of the things that I found in, um, about him was that in the end, uh, he, he almost becomes a tragic figure. Um, and I, I've had readers, by the way, respond in very different ways. I had uh, someone come up to me uh, a couple weeks ago and say, I can't believe you really railroaded this guy. He he's, he's really sounds like a criminal. And then uh, a woman who came up to me literally uh, a couple of days ago and said, um, you know, there's this moment after Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy and you will see Dick go home and he's with his wife and he's crying. And she said, you know, I cried with him. And um, as a writer, oddly enough, that is actually like the, the best of both worlds because you actually, you, you know, what you want more than anything, it's like, I wouldn't compare myself to him, but Quentin Tarantino always likes to say that at the end of a movie, at the end of a film, uh, he, wants his, he wants the audience to leave the theater thinking that every one of them had seen their own picture. And to the extent that everyone has the opportunity to read this and really actually make their own decision, I try really not to pass judgment uh, on any of these people throughout. And I, I've uh, been, uh, in fact, here in London, uh, the question that I've gotten, people said, well, they, you seem like you have sympathized with the, some of these people. And the response that I keep uh, saying to people is that when you the interesting part even for me is when you get in the room and I think when the reader gets in the room and you actually get to see these people as people by, by default when you end up humanizing them um, in some ways I imagine they become cert certain aspects of them become uh, more sympathetic the other surprise I wanted to talk about a little bit was really how far gone we were um, I'm not sure we, we, we all talk about you know how bad was it after Lehman Brothers fell and AIG was taken over, um, there's a, a scene in the book um, at the U.S. Treasury in Hank Paulson's office, and his staff is all arrayed around him. And it's that Wednesday morning, and, and he says to everybody, this is our economic 9-11. And I, I hope that resonates with people here in, in New York, obviously it does. Um, but there was a view at that point, and, and you get to actually see it from inside the boardrooms and the, the corner offices as well, that literally Morgan Stanley, um, obviously a quite venerable firm, was days away from filing bankruptcy, that they had run out of money. And this was something that, again, was something I had not seen in the headlines either. And that the view was that if Morgan Stanley went, Goldman Sachs was going to go. And in fact, there's a rather almost comical phone call that you'll see in the book when Lloyd Blankfein calls John Mack and at the end of the call says, you better hang on because I'm 30 seconds behind you. But the more interesting domino, if you, th if you think about how the dominoes were to fall, was this sense 
that it was actually going to cascade beyond Wall Street and was the sense it was going to cascade to the next domino being General Electric. And in the United States and globally, obviously, General Electric is a, a massive conglomerate, but really in many ways is a bank. Uh, the G capital portion of uh, General Electric is what has powered that firm for many years and also had put them in, in this state of peril. And there was a view that literally big and small companies were not going to be able to make payroll um, the next week. And Jeffrey Immelt, who's the CEO of that company, and you'll see this in the book as well, is literally on the phone pleading with Hank Paulson um, throughout that week because there's this real sense that that things were were quite perilous. So I, I bring that, I give that to you sort of as an overview, only because you know I think there's a there's a large question as to how far and how close we came to the edge, and I actually think we actually were staring over it and probably even closer than some of us imagined. Um, finally, I thought I'd just wrap up, and then we'll go, hopefully have some questions. Uh, to talk a little bit, since we are in the UK, about that fateful Sunday and some of what I think are, are the most interesting and pivotal discussions and sequences um, between the US and the UK regulators, which ended up, in fact, determining the fate of Lehman Brothers. And therefore, to the extent you believe that the failure of Lehman Brothers helped exacerbate this uh, cataclysmic dilemma, um, who is to blame? And this is, you know, a question that I've been getting a lot. And when you get to that fateful Sunday, uh, as many of you know, Barclays was the last bidder for Lehman Brothers. And Barclays um, was very near, near a deal. They had set the price and everything uh, looked okay. In fact, it's almost a funny, again, another comical moment where one of the folks from Treasury comes in the room and actually says, I think we have a deal. It's about 9.45. Looks good. Everybody's positive. One of the bankers actually taps out on his BlackBerry a note to his colleagues back at the Lehman Brothers building. You know, th things are well. People are smiling. There's high fives. It's all looking quite good. Um, and then you flash, and you'll see this as well, to uh, Hector Sands. Hector Sands was the uh, deputy uh, of, in the, at the FSA at the time. He now runs the FSA. And he's driving uh, up the A30 from back from Cornwall for the weekend. And he's on the phone with Callum McCarthy, who at the time was running the FSA. Um, and a backstory on Callum is that Callum uh, was a former banker at Barclays, uh, who I would also suggest to you was not particularly fond of Bob Diamond, but that becomes another piece of the puzzle. And they're on the phone with each other saying, uh, furious really more than anything else, that Tim Geithner has not called them back. They'd been calling all weekend. They're trying to find out what's happening. They're, they're a little anxious, actually, that I think Bob uh, Diamond, who was in New York at the time negotiating the deal, hasn't necessarily communicated to the U.S. government exactly what the requirements would be. And there was a sense that sort of Bob might be a little bit of a cowboy and would be trying in his own way to sort of get the deal as close to the edge so that by the end, everyone would sort of have to capitulate and do whatever was necessary uh, to make the deal happen. And so... Hector and Callum are talking, and they, they script out what they're going to say. And, and by the way, the other thing, and I didn't know about this either, uh, the London – this is bizarre. One of the impetuses for, for making this what becomes a fateful, fateful phone call is that um, the London Clearinghouse, which clears all the trades, was actually upgrading their software that weekend, right? I mean, this has nothing – you'd think this has nothing to do with anything, except for the fact that they had told the London Clearinghouse – this is the FSA – had told the London Clearinghouse, listen – uh, hold off on the upgrade because if there's a real problem here, we don't want you upgrading and the whole system could fall apart. And so the London Clearinghouse has all these techies, technicians and uh, tech guys waiting around to find out whether they can do this or not, and they're getting a little frustrated themselves. And so the London Clearinghouse is constantly calling Hector and calling him, you have to tell us one way or the other because we need to know whether we can do it. And, and it was almost that pressure, this is why it's so stupid, uh, <laughs> That they say, listen, they're, when they're talking to each other, they're saying, listen, we have to either just figure it out or not. Let's just, just cut our losses and let's figure it out so we can tell these people an answer. Well, uh, Callum finally calls uh, Tim Geithner, actually gets Tim on the line, and, of course, starts the conversation. And it's not the most pleasant conversation because it begins with, why haven't you called me back effectively? I don't have the book in front of me, but that was the, the sense of where it was going. And... 
says we have a number of concerns about this deal and we don't know where you really are in all of this. I would also, by the way, take it one step back, which is um, there's an interesting dynamic between uh, Bob Diamond and, and John Varley, who was the CEO of, of, of Barclays. And John was the one who was communicating the most with Hector and with Callum. And that's important because while it's easy to suggest that Bob Diamond desperately wanted to do this deal, he was, this would have been a, a real sort of a career enhancer. It would have put him uh, really back on Wall Street where he wanted to be. Um, I would suggest to you that um, John Varley was not as keen on this. That's not to say he wouldn't do it, but I think from the body language that he's communicating, it's slightly different than we have to do this. It is, we, we, if the world will implode if we don't, whereas Bob desperately wants to do it. Anyway, I say that by background because there's a sense that Callum doesn't really care whether they get this deal done or not, and frankly, I'm not sure that Callum particularly wanted to help Bob Diamond, but uh, that's uh, something else for... for uh, the conspiracy theorists to consider. But what really happens then is they, they make their concerns known to Tim, who gets off the phone in a state of panic, an absolute state of panic. And he goes, rushes into the other room where uh, Hank Paulson is sitting along with uh, uh, Christopher Cox and a whole team of, uh, of the U.S. Uh, government folks and says, you're not going to believe this. The, government, the UK government says we can't do this. They, there's this. Uh, we have to uh, waive the shareholder vote. We would have to guarantee these trades. Uh, it was a very complicated situation, and everybody sort of freaks out and doesn't know what to do. Hank says, "Well, maybe Christopher Cox, who's technically the counterpart of Callum, should make another call to really check on what they're really saying, if you will." So Christopher Cox calls. And you should know that, uh, by the way, Tim and Hank have very little respect for Christopher Cox, so why they're sending him on this call is beyond me. Um, but he makes the call nonetheless, and I'm not sure Callum had particular respect for him either because he says, I don't know why you're doing this. To, I think actually Christopher, Chris says something to the effect of, why are you being so negative? Um, and Callum says, well, I'm, I'm just being realistic because, you know, you're calling us so late in the day. I don't, you know, how are we supposed to get this done if you don't, Tell us what's going on. To which Cox gets off the phone and comes back and says, this is very bad. This is a disaster. Um, and, of course, everyone now says, well, nobody knew this. Why didn't they know this? Um, and it goes back to sort of the miscommunication and sort of the preparations. And we'll get into that maybe in the Q&A. Anyway, I'll, I'll finish the story by saying that, that Hank then turns around and says, okay, I'm going to call Alistair. This is Alistair Darling. Alistair happens to be in Edinburgh. He, he uh, has a home there. That's where he flies in uh, to London uh, every Sunday night. He's on his way to the airport. Before he leaves, he, his cell phone goes off, and Hank calls and says, I haven't ever heard about this uh, problem with the waiver before. What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. And um, Alistair says, you know, I'm not – and it was very interesting. He said, I'm not saying to you that uh, – the opinion that, that, that I'm against this. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying we have these issues. So there's sort of a reasonable deniability about who was going to take credit for this. Now, interestingly enough, uh, of course, Paulson gets off the phone very frustrated because now his view is that, that the, Brit the British don't want to do this at all. And he turns around, and you've probably seen this in the papers. There's this sort of famous quote uh, where, where it, it's been attributed to Darling, and it's actually incorrect, which is, uh, the quote that says, we don't want to import their cancer. And it's actually interesting because Alistair himself never used that phrase. It, but you get to see in the book the game of telephone, which is um, Hank has this phone call and then turns around and goes into the other room and says to everybody, well, Alistair says he doesn't want to import our cancer. And so you get to actually see how this uh, manifests itself. And they go back and forth and back and forth, and there's a conversation about actually whether to call President Bush and maybe whether they should call Gordon Brown, and then Hank Paulson believes that it must have come from, from, from Brown anyway, from, from Downing Street, that there's no way this, this didn't happen any other way. It's not even useful to try this. And there's a sense, of, by the way, among some of these folks, a check-the-box sense, meaning once they sort of got in their heads that this couldn't happen or wouldn't happen or wouldn't happen in the time frame that they wanted it to happen, um, and by the way, it's, oh, they're all running against this mental clock in their head of 7 p.m. in New York, which is when the Asian markets open, that somehow they want resolution. And in fact, resolution didn't mean saving Lehman. It just meant resolution, closure. We needed to know whether they're going bankrupt or not or what. 
And so at that point, they turn around and say, screw it, effectively. We, we're going to, uh, you know, if the Brits aren't going to do this, and we're not going to do this. And at that point, interestingly, they, they sort of lost the opportunity to, to do anything because the, Paulson is accurate when he says he didn't have the authority. Once he lost Barclays as the vessel, as the conduit to which the government might have been able to make a loan, they couldn't have made a direct loan. That is actually a true statement. There's a, sort of a nuance to all of that, of course. And so, of course, they go downstairs and tell everybody um, that the deal is off. In fact, the way they say the deal is off is they actually tell the, all the other bankers who were a consortium, considering they, uh, becoming a consortium to support this deal, they say, you're off the hook, which I thought was sort of an interesting uh, <laughs> way to think about it. Um, and, and one of the most remarkable calls then right after that is the um, Barclays and Lehman are told the deal is off. And a lawyer for Lehman Brothers named Roger Cohen, who runs a firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, calls up Callum, who he knows, by the way, because by the way, this is the most incestuous situation. They all uh, have worked for each other in 20 ways and backwards. And uh, calls up Callum as an old friend and says, Callum, you know, and, and, and of course, Paulson had now used this infected cancer line a million times by this point in the afternoon. And he says, you know, you, I know you don't want to be infected by this. But by not doing the deal, you will be infected by this. And I actually thought that was actually one of the more extraordinary sort of insightful moments and thoughts at that very moment. Um, finally, I will leave you with uh, an email that I, uh, you know, you look for the written record, and much of the book is built around the written record of people's notes and things. But you're always looking for the contemporaneous email. And there's an email that's sent at 1223 that afternoon by Bob Diamond, who runs uh, Barclays, to Bob Steele, who Bob Steele, just everyone knows, was, was the CEO of Wachovia, but was actually had been the fellow at Treasury back in April that tried to originally orchestrate the Barclays deal. So now we're coming full circle, and he's closing the loop. And he writes one sentence, or actually three sentences, but one line. And he says, uh, very frustrating couldn't have gone more poorly, little England. And um, I always thought that that was actually an interesting email in that when, when, you, when you think about the blame game and you're really looking for that contemporaneous record, I, I don't know who, to, who we're going to blame in the end, but it's interesting to me given the uh, view that Barclays has, had espoused at that time that Paulson was at fault and was the one who, who didn't do the deal. That if he really was so furious with Paulson at that very moment, um, he wouldn't have been talking about his old friend who maybe or maybe liked or didn't like him, which was Callum McCarthy. So I leave you with that. I hope we can actually now uh, turn this into a conversation. We didn't even get into lessons learned, and there really are so many uh, that have not been learned, but there are lessons we've learned but that are not being enacted, but we can talk about that too. So. Do you want to just uh, we can go over there. Please. Absolutely. So I think we have about 15 minutes for a couple of questions. I apologize. I apologize for going long. I'm sorry. But we have two up there. If we can get a mic here to the left. And do we have somebody at the lower end? Maybe just speak out, and I might repeat the question. Yeah. So the mic is coming. Hi, um, that's very interesting. I, I wonder if um, during all your conversations you got an impression about when exactly the authorities, and it may not have been the same time in the different, uh, either side of the Atlantic, but at what time the authorities realized this was not a liquidity crisis and appreciated it was a solvency crisis for the banking system? Well, I'm, I'm going to say something very sad then. So on March, it's in the book, um, I want to say it's going to be March 27th. There's a meeting uh, at the Treasury, March 27th, 2008. So that's what you, you, you would have thought I would have gone to September. Uh, but March 27th, 2008, there's a meeting at 8.30 in the morning at the, the staff meeting at Treasury where Hank Paulson literally stands at his desk and says that he believes, uh, and in fact, I think he uses the phrase, uh, Lehman Brothers is insolvent. And I, I, I only raise that because it's extraordinary to me that if that was really the view um, that 
this train, which obviously was barreling down the track, was not seen earlier. Uh, one of the other things, by the way, just in relation to sort of seeing things ahead of time and maybe not doing enough, um, we all know about TARP in the United States, the, the program which originally was set up to buy toxic assets, uh, $700 billion. There's a three-page memo that we all thought was written in September, if you recall, that was then passed on its second try. Congress didn't take it the first time. Um, that plan actually was written uh, on April 15, 2008. Um, the plan was presented at the Federal Reserve to Ben Bernanke at that time. It's actually an 11-page memo. Um, and if you can stay tuned till next Monday, uh, we're actually going to be releasing many of the documents behind the book uh, on TooBigToFail.com, so I can plug it. Um, but you actually, it's actually pretty cool to read. To read. I mean, it, it, it's, it's eerie. I don't want to say cool. It's eerie to read that memo. But it really does demonstrate, you know, part, part of me thinks, oh, you should maybe, maybe you give them credit for seeing the train coming down the track. But then you have to turn around and say, well, what, what did they do about it? So uh, I, I think this, this, this issue of liquidity versus insolvency uh, was actually identified early but there was a view that it could either be contained or otherwise. So uh, that's an unsatisfying answer, I know. Maybe just on the other side, yeah. You've covered a lot of points, but if there is one lesson for everybody in this room, what would it be? And just as a footnote, is your book going to be made into a movie? <laughs> um, uh, stay tuned for the movie. I actually think we might have some good news coming on that front. Um, in terms of the lesson learned, I, I think this all goes back to the same issue that, by the way, has bubbled up on every uh, different bubble that's gone, bur that's burst, which is debt. A and uh, the levels of debt and the risk of debt and um, how much capital banks have uh, on the other side. And when you look at what has happened over the past 20 or 30 years at virtually every bubble, with maybe the exception of the dot-com bubble, which I don't think was fueled by debt so much, um, all of them relate to overextensions of um, leverage. And, and that, I think, remains, uh, I don't know if it remains a problem today, but in terms of when you think about sort of the, the regulatory reforms that have to come, it, that to me is the, un it's, it, that is the only way to, to rewrite, the, the rewrite the rules, the undergirding, the underpinnings of Wall Street. I think you have to address that issue. Uh, one way to address that issue is capital requirements which is something I've been advocating for, for a while now because I truly believe that if you can get to that, I mean, we can talk about whether you want a Glass-Steagall and whether you want the casino attached to the bank and all of those other issues, but to the extent that the banks just need to have a certain amount of money and actually a lot more money sitting in the bank at any given time for every dollar or pound here that they would lend out, um, that seems to me to be the most reasonable course. It also, by the way, to the extent there's a public outrage now over bonuses, it would solve that problem, um, at least in the immediate term, which is to the extent that people are giving out huge bonuses based on these profits, you would force all of that money to go back into the bank, which would make the institutions uh, safer and less risky to the rest of the system. Uh, of course, that cuts, I'm sorry to do this, it cuts both ways, though, because I, what the banks would tell you today is, if you don't think we're lending today, we really won't be lending tomorrow if you require us to keep more money in the bank. So uh, when you th it's a complicated problem. Anyway. We have a question down here. I think the mic is coming. Can I take you back a little on that point? Yeah. Someone once said to me that if they let LTCM just go, right. that it, the cascade would never have happened in the first place. Well, okay, so I think about that a lot. And um, I, I think, I th I've thought about that question. I've also thought about maybe if you just let Bear go, or Bear Stearns go, and what that would have meant. In both cases, by the way, the next domino, funnily enough, was Lehman Brothers. Even in 1998, at that at that time, and so you know, you think about, and I'll do it in the context of Bear just for now. But if if you think about it in the context of letting Bear go, it might have sent the right message to the street. But on that Monday, after Bear was ostensibly saved, Lehman Brothers stock fell 40 percent. And when you when the book opens, you actually see Lehman in freefall. You see a mini bank run going on, even though the company was saved, the, the 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 first domino was saved. And so I think they're actually, and it's counterfactual, but there's an argument to be made that had Bear been uh, let go then, that Lehman wouldn't have failed in September. It would have failed in, in March. And, and now what that would have meant to the rest of the dominoes, I don't know. But I, I, I actually think a very similar problem would have emerged perhaps in 98 on the LTCM front, given 
the, the rumors and not just the rumors, but the, the, literally the almost mini bank run that was running on Lehman then. Um, the, the, the question was that, that Lehman wasn't <coughs> as interconnected, and there's, it was, the interconnected issue is obviously a major one, um, that they weren't as connected in 98 as they were now. Uh, I think that's probably true, but I think that if you, if you were to speak to some of the senior people at Lehman at that moment, uh, they were living in fear that they were going out of business within days of LTCM, so it, it, it could cut both ways. Um, yeah, I just wanted to oh, say... I want to get your book and read it, but oh. what I want to know is, out of that, you're talking about these people are all interconnected, yes. all know each other, and they're at the top, and they'll probably stay there. Um, uh, yes. So how accurate do you think the information you got is for your book, right. roughly your estimate? And sort of in terms of, do you think anything will change in terms of the structure, how things work, right. and their influence? Right. Um, so I was gunning for 100%, right? Um, I, I hope I got there. I, maybe I'm at 99, 98. I, I really do think, uh, you know, there were clearly people who did try to spin me. I don't want to suggest to you that there weren't. But what I would literally do is if there were 10 people in a meeting, I would literally try to talk to all 10. And, and usually by the end, if I hadn't talked to all 10, I'd got to eight. And invariably, as you'll see even in the book, the petty jealousies of, and, and just sort of the relationships between everyone, even though they sometimes work even at the same company, they were not all in love with each other. And you, it's remarkable what people will tell you about each other. Uh, I had two people who are best friends who, to this day, uh, tell each other that they did not participate in the book at all, but I'm sure they both are convinced that they did, and of course they did. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I think I got a pretty accurate picture. And one of the things, you, you think about the dialogue, uh, how do you capture that dialogue? Invariably, two things happen. One is that people say these uh, very memorable things. Sometimes you'll, you talk to someone and they'll say, I, listen, I don't remember anything, uh, you know, how, how, what we said to each other. But I do remember that when, you know, when, uh, when Paulson put down the phone from Darling, he came into the room, and I will always remember for the rest of my life, he used this phrase, and he said, they grin-fucked us. Um, which is actually a very interesting uh, visual if you think about what that, what that really means. I had never heard that phrase either, but it, that's actually why people remember it. There was another phrase where um, Paulson uh, said in one of the meetings, he said, I don't want to be here, I, wanna, I don't want to be left here holding Herman. Um, now, he looked at his zipper for those who didn't get the joke. Um, it's, it'll come to everybody in a moment. <laughs> Um, but, but there are things that are, are memorable for certain people. And the other thing I found was actually that, um, you know, a senior person talking to another senior person might not remember everything verbatim or sort of might have a sense of what was said. Um, but invariably, a younger person, so if you were a staffer and you had a meeting with Bernanke, that was probably the most important meeting of your life. You'll remember everything from that. Bernanke probably won't remember any of it. But so you sort of start thinking uh, sort of sequentially. The other thing that was remarkable is actually the number of emails that were sent before and after many of these meetings. So, you know, I would interview people. People would transpose the meetings. They didn't really remember certain pieces. But invariably, there was always an email prior to the meeting that said, we're going to have a phone call at 2 about XYZ. And after the call at 2.30, we just finished up at 2.30. We just finished up and talked about XYZ, and now we need to do, uh, you know, 1, 2, and 3. And so I would try to use that record um, to actually then go back to the sources, especially when they, I mean, listen, a lot of these people weren't sleeping, obviously. So, I, and I will tell you, the farther I, the harder, the, the reporting got harder and harder, the farther I got from the events. So the people I interviewed in the, in the months, literally, that followed, actually had a much better recall than the people I ended up having to talk to later on in the process. Um, but that didn't answer, and you just said lessons learned, and the sad part is I'm afraid to say I'm not sure the lessons have been learned, but we can get into that in a sec. One question up there. Right. I read an article a few weeks ago in a German magazine stating that there's a lot of lobbyism already going on against all these bills and suggestions true. From, the, yes. from the government that Obama has put in place. Right. Now, to what degree are we starting to see a political move from, for example, the Republicans to trying 
to demoralize the current government or to what degree is it actually the banking and finance industry trying to get back on track well, I think, it's actually, I think it's a confluence of both of those things. I think there's a political element to this. In the United States, clearly, you know, we, we have elections, as, as we always do, and uh, to the extent that the economy stays in a, a poor shape, oddly enough, since people do really vote with their wallet, um, it, it, it only bodes well for the Republicans. And at the same time, as and this is the sad part, um, I think the lessons learned on Wall Street are few. Well, many of the people who are still in power think of themselves as survivors. That's the way they talk about themselves, like cancer survivors, um, not not as being rescued. And it really does. Um, and some of them don't want don't want to acknowledge today that they were saved. I mean, that's part of the ethos. It's part of the whole confidence discussion we were having before. Part of the sort of rah rah, um, you know, part of it is just projecting confidence. So I'm not sure uh, enough has been learned. That's not to say that everybody has a total tenure to this. I spent some time with the board the other day that's uh, on the, a comp committee. And I have to say they were remarkably actually self-aware about the problems that they were confronting. But they thought about that. I mean, the way a comp committee today thinks about it is quite interesting. Uh, there's a fellow, This is, and I, I'm going to be writing about this probably. Uh, this comp committee was thinking about a, a fellow who was uh, making or wanted or they thought that they should – be paid. The management was proposing they pay him $35 million, the, the guy. And so part of him is part of them were talking about this idea that, well, if we were to do this, it would create even more public outrage. And even if we were to do most of it in stock, it would still create the outrage and, and it would be a public relations debacle. Yet at the same time, they're still saying to themselves, well, I have to answer to the shareholder. This guy made us several hundred million dollars in revenue this year, um, whether that revenue is real or not, I don't know, but let's just suggest it's real for now. Uh, we think that he will walk across the street and go elsewhere um, if we don't pay him this money, which probably also is real and true. And so it goes back to this sort of larger question in, in an odd way about capitalism, which is who is your, your responsibility to, whether it be the shareholder versus the community and the taxpayers and the system or what have you, and, and how can they coexist? But Listen, this is a conversation I imagine we're going to be having for many, many years. So two more questions, one here and then over here. Uh, the, Fed, the Fed could have invoked the, the extraordinary powers. Oh, sorry, hi. Yeah. The Fed could have invoked uh, the powers under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, or they could have transformed Lehman into a bank holding company. Yes. And actually they did similar things to Morgan Stanley and to yes. Goldman and the Treasury did things like that to AIG later on. Right. Do you think that the actors did not do this because they underestimated the contagion effects? Of I, I clearly think they underestimated the contagion effect. Um, they, in an odd way, were emboldened by some of the bankers. You talk about the group think and the incestuousness issue. That weekend at the Fed, remember all of the CEOs come, to, come together, many of them were telling Paulson and Geithner and Bernanke that, that well, Bernanke wasn't there, he was in Washington, but they were telling them that we're fine. We saw, we've seen this train coming six months and we're out, we're out, we're not going to have a problem. And so I don't think they realized uh, the problem the, nearly as much and became emboldened, I mean, the, the politicians became emboldened to think, well, if, if the CEOs are saying this, maybe it's okay. One other point to make, which actually, again, is sort of one of the sad moments where you, where you see the train coming. On July 12th, 2.30 in the afternoon, Dick Fault in his office with actually Raj Cohen, the same guy, lawyer, called Tim Geithner and asked to turn Lehman Brothers into a bank holding company. Uh, July 12th, it's a Saturday afternoon. Um, and, uh, and at the time, Tim said to them, are you sure you want to do that? Because if you would, I, uh, that he, he, he was worried that it would actually send the wrong signal to the markets, that in and of itself it would undermine confidence. So I just suggest that to you. Uh, I'll make it also sadder for you once again. Uh, I think it's August 2nd, but the book's not in front of me. I believe August 2nd, Bob Willemstadt, who was the CEO of AIG, went to see Tim at his office uh, on 33 Liberty uh, Street and had the exact same conversation and said maybe we should become either a bank holding company or a primary dealer or something of that sort. And uh, Tim Geithner's view at that time was that it was it would only undermine confidence in the system. So um, for what it's worth. So one last short question. Uh, I apologize. A short answer. I'll go very short. We'll let everyone go. <laughs> yes, sir. 
doesn't mic coming. So while the mic is making its way, yeah. maybe I should say Andrew will be outside for another half an hour okay. signing his book. I didn't know, but I'm happy to. Well, I was told. Oh, okay. okay. I'm happy to sign books, And yes. obviously also selling his book. Uh, that's true, too. So, anyway, and here, that's the last question. Um, there's a contrarian view, which I've seen in the Wall Street Journal, <coughs> that the, the trigger for the meltdown in September uh, was not actually Lehman, but uh, the Fannie Mae kind of bailout which wiped out the shareholders. And, and, and right. the, the, the argument given is that uh, um, spreads on credit default swaps were surprisingly stable after Lehman, but then widened enormously, sort of supposedly indicating sort of massive loss of confidence after the Fannie Mae uh, bailed out. So do you think there's any... any I, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me, only, only in that Fannie, if you remember, was saved or put into conservatorship the week prior to Lehman Brothers. But but I could be I, I mean in terms of the sequence, Fannie came came before Lehman Brothers. I see the problem with Lehman Brothers. I'll go very very quickly on this issue. Um, the the real cataclysm in an odd way was if you recall all this money. You remember heard uh, like ten billion dollars got locked up in the London based arm of Lehman Brothers. I actually think that represented one of the biggest problems because the bankruptcy code in the UK required them to uh, go bankrupt. And that meant that they could not continue trading. And it locked up all this money, not just in the U.K., but this was money of hedge funds and investors in the U.S. and in Asia and everywhere else. And it created this sort of vicious circle because without access to that that cash or that capital, uh, many of these firms started selling everything they had as quickly as they could uh, in this sort of fire sale that became this vicious circle and almost became this torrent. Now, at that time, that then contributed to the to the run on the money market uh, problem in the U.S., which then really, I think, helped undermine sort of the, the sort of structural confidence in the system. But um, some people have said to me that the real problem, at least in the U.S., was actually when TARP wasn't passed the first time, if you remember, uh, the markets cratered because the rest of the world said, these, these guys don't know what they're doing. So, um, you know, there's the political element and, and, and then there's the actual uh, undergirding of the economics. So thank you for the question, though. So anyway, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me.